Our guest tonight joins us from all the way across the pond in Houston, Texas. He is a TEDx speaker. He's an award-winning Master of Business Administration, picking up the Outstanding Student Award from C.T. Bauer College of Business. He's a social media influencer and an all-round mindful businessman. He works with businesses to grow them with his digital strategies, and in his own words, he wants to help people win by defining and achieving success on their own terms. Alejandro, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hi, Louis and Joe. Thank you very much for the invitation, and I'm honored to be here because I know that I've listened to several of your podcast episodes, and you, I know that you're all about adding actionable value and giving insights to your audience and things that they can actually put into action. So I'm very excited about having this conversation with you guys, and hopefully we can create a lot of value for your audience today. That's what it's all about, Alejandro. We want to give as much value as possible. And when I think about your story, I think that there's only one place to start. Let's start with books. Just one look at your Instagram, at Mindful Business. You can see that you are an avid reader. We have preached on many episodes about how important it is. What is it about reading that you love? Well, uh, I think that starts with the desire of learning and growing, right? And, And trying to win and do the best that we can. I always go back to giving the example of gaming, right? Um, Anybody who's played um, Age of Empires or any type of role-playing games, they know that after a while you figure out that there's probably somebody else that did it before and put up a guide or a FAQ about the game, and you would go and read about it to try to understand what's the best stats combination or what's the best way to build your civilization. And it's the same in life. It's all about learning from the experience from others. And that's where it started for me in, in, in the sense of reading books. I just understood that when I was facing a challenge, there's probably somebody else who's been through that before. And probably there's been somebody else that got so obsessed with it that was able to solve the problem and wanted to share that process with anybody else. So after doing that for a while and and getting started with reading, I just realized that the best way to solve a problem is to understand who did it, who solved that problem before, read about their experience, understand their process, and then try to apply that to the challenge that we're facing. Beautiful. Recommend to create the habit right because i could give you the 10 best books on how to maximize life but if people don't actually go and read them and maximize them it was started by the japanese people in toyota that said that if people create goals that are achievable they're just looking to cross it off their list so they're gonna because it feels good right like oh i did something i achieved something and then people would just put things that they can achieve and they would never do anything big enough. So I think we can apply both to reading books. What I would say people at the beginning is put a small enough goal that you feel motivated to read every day. So something like 10 pages. I just need to read 10 pages. And I think that's something that everybody can do every day, no matter what you can find the time to read at least 10 pages. And after you do that, then you're going to actually, if you like the book, hopefully you're reading things that are interesting to you. You're going to see that you want to read more. So some days you might just do the 10 pages because you don't have enough time, but others you're going to find yourself reading 20, 30, and maybe 100 pages just because you're so into the book. So that would be the first thing. And once you find yourself constantly reading 10 pages a day, then you're going to see that you start reading several books a year, and then you start to push yourself. So to give you an example, for the past two years, I think 2017, I read something around 17 or 18 books, and then I saw I could I could do a little bit more. Last year, my goal was 30, and I think I did 34, 35 and now this year I'm, I'm aiming for 40, and I'm sure I'm going to do a little bit more, 
But if you would tell somebody that's just starting to read and you tell them like, hey, you got to read 40 plus books a year, they're probably going to say that that's impossible and they're not going to even start. So I would start there, just create the habit. And then in terms of picking books, I like Tim Ferriss's approach of reading just in time books instead of reading just in case books. Because when you read just in time books, it's about knowledge or information that you need for something particular that you're solving, uh, a challenge that you're facing. So you're gonna feel really motivated to read it because you wanna solve the problem. And as you read, you're gonna see that how what you're reading connects to this the problem that you're facing, the pain that you're feeling. So that's gonna drive you to, to read more. So in those lines, I was talking about the books specifically, some to me that are very, very general, apply for a lot of things in life and would give value to anybody who reads them would be Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I think that's one of the most recommended books in in Tim Ferriss' book. I don't know, is the last one, A Tribe of Mentors or Tools of Titans? And the other one I would recommend is Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that one for me was a game changer because I didn't read it for many years because I thought the title was a little bit misleading. Like, I don't need, like, influencing people, I thought it was about manipulation and how to win friends. I, I thought that. I didn't need to win friends, like I already had friends, but after reading the book, I understood that it's all about people in life, business, anything in this world is about people, and if you can build better relationships, you're going to do better, and that's what that book is about. So that's what I would say in terms of building the habit to read more, and I would recommend people those two to start, and then after that, just find books that are related to a challenge that you're facing and and see how many people are recommending those books. I always check a Goodreads when I'm deciding if I'm going to read a book and then I also pick books that are recommended by other people who are like me and other people who, who face or are facing similar ch- challenges to what I'm facing at the moment. Wow. What a great answer. And I loved what you said but there about the Dale Carnegie, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That book actually had a very similar effect to me where when I first read the title, I was a bit standoffish. I thought that it was a bit gimmicky. And then just by reading it, when Carnegie talks about how you can make more friends in a day by being interested in other people, than in a year about trying to get other people interested in you. I just thought that that just absolutely blew me away. And I think that that applies for life, relationships, business. But I would like to know, what book have you recommended to others the most? In terms of recommendation, I think the book that I've recommended and gifted the most are Tim Ferriss' books, the last two Tools of Titans and Tribe of Mentors because I think they're valuable enough but general enough that they apply to a lot of people. So I would probably say those two. And then I don't remember. We I know we did a, a blog post about, about the top 10 books of, I think it was 2018, but uh, there's several that come to mind. Anything by Malcolm Gladwell, I think it's going to be a good read and, and people are going to find it valuable anything by Ryan Holiday, his latest books, Ego is the Enemy, The Obstacle is the Way, mm-hmm. I would say those are also very valuable, and Essentialism by Greg McEwan, and Extreme Ownership by Joko Willink, I think those those four or six books would be a good place to start and apply to anything that anybody would be doing. Beautiful, and we, we know our listeners will appreciate that because our audiences, you know, they take influence from successful people such as yourself. And on that note, if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self a piece of advice, what would it be? Because, like we said, a lot of our uh, audience are quite young and they're at that stage now. What sort of advice would you have given yourself now, knowing the things you know now? 
Well, it's hard, right? Because um, at that moment, you probably wouldn't listen. I know, I know myself enough to know that even if I, if it was actually possible to go back in time and meet myself, I, I know I would probably be stubborn enough to not pay attention. So, <laughs> but it would be about understanding that the only person that we need to change is ourselves. Because I don't remember who the quote is, but it's about. When we're young, we have energy and we're going to go out and change the world. And then we grow a little bit older and then we realize we cannot change the world, but we want to change the people around us. And then once we're really old, we realize that the only person that we can change is ourselves. So in that way, mindfulness for me has been about anytime I see something that I want to criticize or feedback that I want to give or something that I want to change in somebody else or I just right at that moment I put a mirror on that statement and look at what is it that I need to change about myself and, and another thing I remember at that age I used to be so reactive right like all the passion and obsession and I would want to win on everything that I was doing if we were playing risk I wanted to win doing that if we were playing any type of video games or sports I always wanted to win and it's about understanding that you only have a certain amount of energy and you have to use it for what it really matters and it can be summed up in that um, quote I don't remember who says it but like pick the battles that you want to win right like you cannot win any battle but you can win the war if you focus on the important battles so I remember and I realized it because I used to argue about everything as, like as you know and you can see I'm like super obsessed about learning so I'm always reading and because of that I thought I knew more than anybody else on any topic that I was reading right so it would be sports if he was arguing or discussing about basketball and I would get so heated any discussion and I started to realize with my teammates in the basketball team that they would do it on purpose at some point I realized that they would say something like, oh, no, but LeBron is not really that good. And I would immediately react and start to rant about LeBron. And at a, at a point, I realized that they didn't really care about the discussion. They just enjoyed seeing me get all rattled because of that topic. And I realized that it was just like I had a button and they knew how to press it and they knew the reaction they would get and I realized that that's actually not the best way to use your energy so any I know that you are passionate about making change and I'm sure your audience is just like you obsessed about improvement obsessed about learning so what I would say to anybody who's out there at that age where you have a lot of energy just use it wisely because it's limited and focus on the things that really matter to you. What was it specifically that made you decide to want to change from, say, being reactive and um, giving a lot of, say, giving a lot of other people your emotions to, say, being able to take a step back and, you know, being able to really process things and regulate your emotions? Was there a specific thing or was it just... A gradual process and transition over time I wouldn't really be able to to point to the right moment but what I could say is that maybe twofold I started to get tired like anytime I had a discussion I would feel bad or anytime I wouldn't win at something I would feel bad or or I would have um, arguments about everything with people and I started to realize that it was really hurting me. It was really hurting me when I lose the basketball game and I was unhappy for a week. It was really hurting me and, and I was wasting a lot of energy when arguing with people and trying to convince them that, I don't know, that they need to read more or that they need to invest or anything that I was going through and I was learning about. I just realized that it's not worth it to get all rattled by things that you can't control. 
And the other thing that helped me realize that is that for the past, I think, four years, I've been meditating. And again, that's something that I would tell my 18-year-old self, but I know at that time I would say, like, ah, that's, like, rubbish. That doesn't work. But for the past four years that I picked it up because I've been listening, I've been hearing that recommendation for a while, and then Tim Ferriss recommended the Headspace app so I tried it and for me it was like, it felt like a video game because if you go to the app, you can see there's different levels and the, and you can accumulate streaks. So they did a brilliant job in gamifying the experience. So I like that. I like keeping track, the accountability. And I felt that it's, you realize that it's really a superpower. I feel like it's, I don't know if you, because that was a, a many years ago, but I don't know if you know about the the movie The Matrix. Have you seen the movie course, or, yeah, or heard about yes, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I really feel like mindfulness and and not being reactive. It's like when Neo realizes that he can dodge the bullet. <laughs> yeah. It, and it really is like at the beginning you're struggling with the agents, right? Like, and you're okay. Now you realize you have you're fighting against it. But then at some point you can just like let it pass. And it's the same with the emotions and, and, and the reactions. Like when I'm in traffic right now, I, again, because of that impulsivity and, and energy and wanting to win, I wouldn't let anybody like get in front of me. Or if somebody was going slow, I'm like, I need to go faster and I need to like go past them or, or somebody, I don't know, cross in front of me. I need to show them that I'm not going to let right like my ego is like no like i need to be first and then i realized that it's just it's a waste of energy in in the sense of yourself and getting rattled because of that it's a waste of your car because you like accelerating and braking it hard just damages your car you're using more gas so it's an all-around inefficient use of energy so i just started I think one of the first exercises of mindfulness is it's changing the story you tell yourself about what's happening, right? So when somebody started like going ahead of me, I started changing the story like, oh, maybe they're maybe they're in an emergency, right? Like maybe I don't know somebody, a family members in the hospital, and they really need to get there really fast. And don't get me wrong, maybe they're just like bad drivers or, or they don't care and they are very disrespectful. But if you tell yourself the story that they're not and there's somebody in an emergency, that's all that it is to you. So you're going to feel good about it and you're not going to spend any energy trying to get ahead or anything like that. So after doing that with driving that I all the time when I was young, I wanted to go faster, right? Like I grew up seeing Fast and the Furious and I want to be the fastest and pass every car. I just realized that if I was able to do that with driving, that was just one thing, I realized that I could do it with everything and, and try to be in control more of how I react to things instead of trying to control the things that happen around me. Beautiful, man. And and you, you we preach about mindfulness on here a lot. I mean, one of our biggest episodes so far has been on mindfulness. And a lot of people said that it's something that they've always wanted to adopt, but they're not sure exactly how to start how to get into it, what techniques to use, any practices. What are some small daily practices of mindfulness that, that people could start to adopt without making too big of an instant change? To me, it works to think about mindfulness as a muscle, right? Like you go to the gym and you are not going to get strong if you go, if you take the best supplements and you only go once a week and train for 10 hours, right? Like the, the real result is going to come from going at least for half an hour every day. And you start with, I don't know, you do 10 reps with 10 pound weights and then you get a little bit stronger and you increase the weight a little bit and suddenly you're super strong. So to me, it's the same with mindfulness and it helps to do, if you would tell me at the beginning, some I need I need something concrete. So if you would tell me at the beginning that it's about the energy and the chakras and all this thing, I would say like, nah, man, that's like, that's rubbish. So, but now I'm like, yeah, like there's a lot of truth to all the mindfulness and, and all the theories, and I understand the research behind it. So 
I would start with something as simple as, I don't know, 10, 10 sets of, of box breathing or 10 sets of um, counting from zero to 10, focusing on your breathing, and that's all you do every day because it's about creating the habit. And nowadays, I know there's many apps. I would recommend people to check, of course, Headspace. That's a, they have, a, I think, a 10-day free trial, and they, it, it explains it. It makes it super simple. But uh, find what works for you and just do it as consistent as possible, especially at the beginning while, while you're developing the habit because it's, it's really going to prove super valuable to anything you do in, in, in your life. One of the things which I found, and what is clear is that for like a type a personality say someone that is an older sibling or someone that's played sports all their life that is just uber competitive that a mindfulness or a meditation practice it really can be a superpower and really i think that it can save a lot of friendships and relationships and it probably will save you from dying 10 years too young so i loved what you said there one of the things i want to ask is that your upcoming TEDx talk is called Positive Suffering. I love the sound of that title and, and I cannot wait for it to be released. As soon as it is, we'll be releasing it on our Instagram and whatnot. Could you give our listeners an insight into the premise behind Positive Suffering? Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that, hopefully when it comes out. So the thing is that nowadays there's really not a lot of real pain in terms of like if you compared humans many years ago right that we would have real pain and suffering every day because we didn't have a we struggled being protected from the elements we would have to go out and hunt every day in something as simple as death death was something normal some every every day probably many thousands of years ago, everybody would see somebody die maybe once in a while just because of the elements or because of um, a disease or because an animal came and ate somebody or because of a war with another tribe. So all aspects of pain and suffering were normal. And nowadays, we don't really have those problems anymore, or at least the majority of the world. Yet... There's research, I think it's in Brene Brown's book, uh, Daring Greatly, there's research that proves that psychological suffering and pain can be experienced as physical pain. And it's related to your perspective and your surroundings. So, somebody in Africa struggling because they don't have food can experience the same intensity of pain as somebody who cannot dine at their favorite restaurant because, I don't know, they didn't make a reservation. So even though those are two different, of course, if we understand both, we know that the second person shouldn't be suffering as much, but for the second person, because of that, of their environment and their perspective, they think that's the most suffering they've had right like oh i cannot have my favorite food so it's really about putting yourself into perspective and also making making suffering and pain an endurable thing in your life because if you think about it most people are pursuing happiness and that's a never-ending pursuit because happiness cannot be sustained if you think about it if you want to be more happiness, what you're really asking is for is more suffering because happiness is the opposite of suffering. So you can only be as happy as the amount of suffering that you have in your life. So you can compare it and that's how you know that it's happiness. So happiness cannot be sustained, but if you think about meaning that can be sustained and that's, one of the main theses in, in Viktor Frankl's books about in search for meaning, man's search for meaning, because after all his suffering through the uh, concentration camps and he was able to survive, he realized that what we 
should really pursue, which can be sustained all throughout life, is meaning. Because you can be having a great time and have meaning, and you can be having a, the worst time of your life, but still have meaning because it's it can be sustained. So the thesis in, in my talk was about instead of running away from pain and suffering, trying to actually look forward to pain and suffering and make it a daily part of your life because that's how you're going to achieve meaning and have a better life. So if you think about it in simple terms, the athletes that are able to to stand the pain the longest in the gym and the lactic acid and all that, the ones who do that are the ones who end up winning. It's the same with the entrepreneurs, right? Like the entrepreneur who's willing to stand the pain of receiving no's every day and, and failing every day, but they the ones who stand that pain and do it the longest are the ones who end up having the best businesses. Or it's the same with an artist, right? Like artists suffer because at the beginning, what they see in their head and the art that they want to create does not match their skill level. So they suffer because they are not creating beautiful things like the things they see and they, they envision in their heads. So they struggle with that. And maybe they struggle with people telling them that they should get a real job. So it's the same, right? Like it's pain and suffering and the artists who are willing to suffer the longest and while mastering their craft are the ones who are going to end up achieving success. So that's the whole thesis about, hey, understand that pain and suffering, nobody's going to escape that. It's a sure thing in life. We're all going to have pain. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to die. So if you find a way to maximize that, then life is going to actually get easier. So, and this is nothing new. It's not like I created this theory. It's, it's an adaptation of Stoic philosophy and all their methodologies. So what I advocate is for people to find ways to put themselves in, in difficult positions to build a tolerance to suffering. Like same with that muscle that we were talking about in the in sense of mindfulness, right? Like build your mindfulness muscle. It's the same with the pain and, and the suffering. Build your capacity to tolerate suffering and pain so that then the small things in life are not going to affect your decisions and your thinking. So I recommend people like, hey, try fasting. Like I fast every day for 16 hours. So I tell people every once in a while try fasting or try to eliminate certain foods for periods of time. Like I love coffee, but every once in a while I go one, two or three days without coffee just so I can be always in control, not be dependent uh, of what my brain and my body is telling me that I need, but really being in control of, of the things that I need and the pain that I can withstand doing things like doing things with your weak hand, right? Like if you're right-handed, use your left, or if you're left-handed, use your right. Simple things like brushing your teeth, opening doors, even writing if you want. And then you're going to see that after you do that every day, the simple things that used to take you or bother you are not going to bother you anymore. Well, that's a very thought-provoking and, and self-reflecting sort of point of view and you said you've put yourself in a lot of small examples of, of suffering like you talked about coffee and things like that I was just wondering if there was any major example you could give us of any sort of pain or suffering you've purposely put yourself in that was quite a turning point for you in in then achieving something well I can point to one recently it, I didn't did it I didn't do it on purpose but it happened I recently had um I tore or separated my Achilles tendon and that was um it's it's still been because I'm still recovering I still can't do a lot of things and it was a painful situation in a lot of ways in in of, of course physically because of the pain of breaking your tendon but also mentally because for a while you cannot walk and and even after the surgery, the pain of the surgery and the pain of of just adapting your life and not being able to walk. And now I can see the light at the end of the tunnel because I've been through the recovery process and just from not being able to walk to now I can walk and, and I can do, um, I've been doing the exercises and the rehab and I've been, I can 
do exercise again. I'm starting to build muscle. So I can see how from now I can get to back to normal. But for a while, it, you really start to question if you're going to be able to just go back to normal. So in, that's something that happened. I didn't pick it. So now it's just appreciating and understanding that there's always something worse that could happen. So just focus on on making the most of every situation, right? Like and being thankful of what you have and appreciating every challenge as a teacher that is coming to teach you something about life. Wow. And it, I would guess like picking one one that I've picked. I don't know. Sometimes I go, I do the cold showers, um, and it's it's been getting cold in Houston lately. Not as cold as any as other places, but uh, I do that every once in a while. And Tony Robbins recommends that. It's been proven that it's kind of like a reboot of your body. It's kind of like when your computer, the RAM memory, it's been super slow, or your cell phone, and then you turn it off and turn it on it, it kind of like gets its speeds back because it clears the cache memory and all that it's the same with your body if you do a cold shower um, it helps you reboot your brain so I do cold showers once in a while I if it's super cold I go out without a sweater or something just to get used to not complaining and, and being in difficult environments and difficult situations so I would say those two probably cold showers and, and just dealing with the Achilles tendon rupture injury. That's been not that I choose. I didn't pick that, but uh, it came and I appreciated it. So, yeah. Yeah. Can you, you guys? Oh, that's a very good question. The cold shower one, I think, is a great one. I mean, I remember waking up on some mornings and you think to yourself, I would do anything not to do it. And the first few times you step under there and you get like a headache when it's really, really cold. And, you know, and you're like the first few times you just you just run under there for a few seconds. But then you really do adapt and the benefits of a cold shower, they're, they're amazing. And you feel so great after you take one. You, t- you feel I completely agree with everything you said there. Um, one question I'd love to know. Is there a habit or belief that you have formed within the last two years which has had a positive impact on your life absolutely and I, and with this one i would have to go back to the habit of mindfulness because it it really is the main habit and belief that has helped me change and turn around my life i would say in the in the past couple of years because it really helps you understand and I think it's in one of Kim Ferris' books that uh, I think it's Naval Ravikant that mentions that there's only three things you can do in any type of situation right you can accept you can try to change it or you can leave it so mindfulness really is building the muscle to at least try to do your best at picking what is it that you need to do in every situation and, and it's really helpful for um, anything, negotiating. Like you can think about it in business, right? Like if you don't get rattled, you are always going to be in a better position to make a decision when negotiating um, anything. I'll, I'll, I have a concrete example. I'll give you an example. I The other day, I was taking my car to the dealer. And so I take I took my car to the dealer. They did whatever they needed to do, and then um, after that, they made a recommendation and they said that I needed to change the battery. So usually, I use the dealer for the for the big things that need to happen because of the brand of the car. But then the repairs and the parts, I get them myself because I know that the business, the car business really makes its money with the maintenance. Sometimes brands would sell the cars at cost just because they know they're gonna make a lot of money with their repairs. So whenever there's something that I can change myself, let's say it's a bulb or the battery or something like that, I go and do it myself. 
So in this case, they were recommending to change the battery. I think they were saying something like 400 or $500 to change the battery. And I know a battery for my car is about $100, $150. So I said like, yes, but no, thank you, I'll change it. So after that, I went and changed the battery at another place. And I saw that there was a small part missing in the area of the engine of my car. So I'm like, hmm, that's, that's really weird. I'm OCD enough to know that that part was there before because I usually, when I clean my car, I even clean the engine part because I, I want everything to look good. And, and not only for other people, I'm, and I'm sure you know the theory, but it's for ourselves, right? Like Steve Jobs did it, the famous quote about caring about how the computer looks inside, not because anybody's gonna see it, but because he knew how it looked and that makes him feel better about the product. So it's the same. So anyways, I see that the part was missing and I go back to the dealer because I, I assume that something happened. Maybe the part is somewhere they forgot to put it because I know the part was there. So I go back to the dealer and I start talking with them like, hey, um, I just want to be sure. I came here early. I did the service and I noticed that there was a part missing in my car. So maybe somewhere in the in the in the shop or, or somebody forgot to put it back. Can you please check? And already they got defensive. I already saw that they thought I was blaming them and I was just there to, to solve a problem and understand what happened. So they, they said something like, oh no, those parts, they, they sometimes fall all the time. And I'm like, well, but if that was the case, just as you rec recommended me to change uh, the battery or any other of the parts that you were recommending, you should have recommended me to change that part, right? Because that's why I come to the dealer. And they said, and they like, they started really getting defensive up to the point that they were, um, I felt like a lot of bad energy and, and they were saying like, no, that's not our responsibility. And it started to get heated. And I just realized because of the mindfulness. And again, it, it goes back to that superpower of feeling like Neo in this, in, in any situation, I just realized that I, instead of getting angry or or mad because they were trying to not pay for the part, I felt bad because of how, because of the bad job they were doing in client management. Like I realized that the part that I was arguing about, it cost like, I think it was like $11 or something like that. It was just a, a small um, little part that goes on top of a valve or something like that. And I just realized in the middle of the conversation, like, wow, like how short-sighted these people are that they don't realize that an $11 part is going to lose them a client that's been coming here for the past four years doing every service here. And I was probably going to do it for the rest of my life. So instead of like getting all rattled, because of that mindfulness, I was able to see beyond that and just keep the calm and, and, and change the emotion from anger or, or battling or, or ego and trying to win the discussion to, to feeling bad. And I was able to keep the calm and keep asking questions, not pointing any fingers. And at the end, I left the dealer with the part without having to pay for it. And, and in that situation, most people either would have, um, left because nobody wants an uncomfortable conversation right like nobody's good at dealing with negotiations or anything of that because it's uncomfortable and it's painful and or people get rattled and it ends up into a big fight so that's to me I, I don't know if I would have been able to handle that four or five years ago I probably wouldn't have shown up because I don't want to have a discussion in that uncomfortable conversation or it would have ended up in a discussion in in, in yelling because of ego, right? And and because of mindfulness, I was able to calmly keep asking questions, not getting rattled, and, and then ending up getting my part and just making the decision that I don't want to go back there. And, and we can tie that to, I think it's, I don't know if it's Tony Robbins or Tim Ferriss that say that the amount of success in your life can be correlated to the amount of uncomfortable conversations you're willing to have. So mindfulness is a great tool to navigate through uncomfortable conversations and situations. That example is 
is true testament to to what a superpower it can be and i know our listeners are gonna love that because like i said mindfulness is a is a huge topic on this show so they're gonna be really grateful to take um take that one away with them speaking of things that are popular on this show a question that we get hounded with really so much so that we have to do an entire episode on it is the education system and in particular a college degree now i know i think all three of us here have college degrees and we might have you know different experiences but we wanted to get your opinion on on the current education system absolutely and that's a, a great question a great topic and, and and happy to talk about it so i've been on both sides of that question for a while when i was in undergrad in venezuela i almost didn't finish college i was i dropped out and i for a while i didn't want to finish because i thought it was not useful and nowadays I'll have a master's degree, right? So it's like from not wanting college to all in with college. And there's several ways we can analyze this topic. The first one could be in terms of the, the economy as a whole. And there's a lot of research that proves, for example, that in rural areas or for somebody who is not gonna finish a college degree, sometimes it's, it's even better for them to not even go to high school. Because if that person, imagine a kid, I don't know, 10, 12 years old, and they their decision is, should I go to high school or should I work in the family's farm? For that person, all those years of high school are a negative in the amount of value they are producing, right? Because they're not working their family is sustaining them and they're not creating any value at the moment as they're, while they're a student for the economy. And if they only finish high school and they don't go to college, they cannot really create that much value. So in, in economic terms, in macroeconomic terms, they've wasted all those years. So in that case, it's better for them to start working right away if they know they're not going to get a, go to college and get a, um, a higher degree job, right? So that's one perspective. And on the other would be, I would say to people, and start with the end in mind, right? Like, yes, you need the degree, and no, you don't need the degree. I think there's a lot of examples nowadays in both, with both options, that tell you that you can be successful colleges and the best degrees and best grades and they're successful. And then you have people who have no education and they've been successful. So what I would tell people is understand what is the goal that you want to achieve. See who's done that, what's the path they've taken, and then do that. And that might be getting a degree or not getting a degree. And then if you want to go to college, be really mindful about the ROI, the investment you're making and the return on investment you're going to get on that degree. And, um, and I imagine you've, you might have listened to this episode. I think, again, it's in the Tim Ferriss podcast. I know like I sound like a repeating machine mentioning that all the time, but it's a great resource. And one of the guests was talking about understanding where to go depending on the degree you're going to get. Because, for example, if you go to a very expensive university and you study business or, or law or you study to be a doctor, you are probably going to be able to get the return because you're going to get a high-paying job and you're going to be able to pay the debt. So in that case, it makes sense. But if you're going to go to one of those expensive universities to study art or writing or something that the jobs are not high paying, you're going to be in a tough situation because you're going to have all that debt and it's going to be really tough for you to get that degree. So unless your family has a lot of money and really the ROI doesn't matter and that's what you really want to do because it, the return in happiness that it's going to give you, it's worth it, then go ahead. But if you are thinking about going to college and getting a loan or getting in debt to go to college, you really have to think about what is it that you're going to do with that asset 
once you graduate. And um, I don't know if it's Ray Dalio or or somebody else, but they mentioned that for a while they felt trapped because they couldn't be an entrepreneur because they had to get that consulting high paying job after their MBA to pay off the debt, right? Like going to Harbor, one of those top 10 MBA schools, it's about $250,000. So it's a big investment that you need to recuperate by getting a high paying job. And um, it's, it's just, that's what I would tell the people, understand that it's an investment and try to maximize it in every way you can. Just um, the connections, a lot of people, it's, it, everybody says it, but it's really true when you do, go do a master's degree, especially an MBA, the value is not so much in what you learn, but in the people that you meet. So be sure that while you're doing that, you're all in into that experience and maximizing the connections with the professors you're meeting, stay in touch with them so you can keep learning for them from them. Same with your classmates, right? Like get involved in as many projects so that you can get to know the people, but most importantly, so that they can get to know you. So two, three, four years down the road, when they have a, a business challenge and they think about, hey, who can I contact that can help me with this? They're gonna think about you because you were involved with them in, in the projects and they saw how good your work ethic was and in, in your teamwork and all that. So I would say to people, just consider the, the I think it's in Ray Dalio's book, uh, Principles, he talks about the second degree and the third degree of uh, consequences of a decision. So just understand when you're going to college, there's a lot of things that have to be considered when you make a decision of what type of degree you're going to pursue, in which university, and and, and what do you want to do with that when you graduate. That was an excellent answer, and probably usually. Yeah, I'm I'm curious and sorry to interrupt you. Usually, what what do people in your audience advocate for? Do they are nowadays more people advocating for going to college or not going to college How how's the discussion so far in, within that topic well it's interesting because uh, the, it was scarcity of them back then that it would almost always result in a positive ROI the university education and college degree is so saturated now that the question of will you get a positive return is is so diminished and and really you actually probably stand out more if you don't have one but i would also argue that as you said if you wanted to become a doctor a lawyer an engineer a, a psychotherapist then in that instance like you said to begin with the end in mind and you know that in that case it is worth it because you have to do it yeah yeah well the another thing would also to consider where are people asking the question from and in which country are they thinking about studying? Because I've been, I've been part of two complete different education systems. I did my undergrad in Venezuela and I did my master's here in the United States. So those are two complete different systems. I think, for example, in Venezuela, there's about, I don't know, maybe five or six good universities. And if you graduate from those, no matter what, you're going to get a good job. So let's say you, I don't know, you study economics, business administration, or engineering. If you graduate from one of the good schools, which are five or six, that's it. You're going to get a job no matter no matter if you have a bad GPA. Like there's one, uh, the best school of engineering in Venezuela. The average years of, of that people take to graduate, I think it's about seven years. So mm-hmm. most people take way more than, than they need. And it's because of the dynamics of the market, right? Like there's not a lot of good schools, only a little. Everybody wants to go there. So the professors can really do what they want. Like there are some courses that are famous for only one, two, or three people out of 100 passing the course. And nobody can do anything about it. People complain, but it's just the way there is because there's not a lot of supply in terms of good education. But then you come here to the United States and – there's a good school almost, there's several good schools in every city, public, private, right? So it's a way more competitive market. So the schools actually have to adapt a little bit to what the market wants. So 
I haven't heard like throughout my masters. I don't know. I think nobody failed the course. It's it's a complete different system where the professors are graded. They're they have ratings and they're actually trying to do the best job in teaching, but also getting people to like the course because let's say for example somebody here in Texas they have like three four five good schools that they can pick and that's only Texas if you go to the state next to it there's like 10 others so the universities have to do a better job of also catering to making it a good experience for the students which for example it's probably not the same in Venezuela so there's a lot of things to consider depending on, again, where you're studying and what your end goal is. Yeah, well, I thought that was a, a great answer. And it's really interesting to note how there is a, a, a variance in the cultures because I think that particularly in, say, the United States and in the United Kingdom, it seems like university and colleges is just it's just the norm it's it's not i don't i think that it has lost the the privilege type thing whereas in venezuela as you says then perhaps maybe that is the gold standard uh, so maybe in say the western culture in particular maybe this is where this type of entrepreneurial mentality is developing do you think that say the western culture do you think that that is good or do you think that that's bad well it's not good or bad it just depends on what you want to achieve right because mm -hmm. um i understand that getting a degree just minimizes the risk right like if you see somebody who has a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and you're considering hiring them versus somebody who has no degree at least the person that you know has the degrees, you know that they've been through those quality standards, right? Mm -hmm. So even though the quality is not always the same, you can have an idea of what they're able to do. Somebody who doesn't have a degree, you would need more maybe a portfolio or, or, or something else to better understand what's the value you're going to get from them as a resource, as a, as a, as a as an, um, an asset, right? Like a, a, an asset that you're investing when you bring them onto your company. But the other thing to consider is just think about how many resources are being dedicated in terms of the economy as a whole to education. Because, for example, I don't know how it is in the UK, but I know here in the United States, everybody can get um, a student loan. The debt is never going to go away, but and they're going to carry it and they can pay it in I don't know how many years, but they can get it if they, if they apply for it. So think about how many dollars is the economy investing in getting people to get educated that could be invested in something else? Like what's the cost of opportunity of all those students getting those loans to, for example, get an education instead of using that capital to fund startups. What is the economy losing because we're putting that money into resources that maybe people are not going to use? Because like you said, like nowadays, it seems like the bachelor's, it's not valuable anymore. You need to have a master's to really compete. So all those years of education, what is that? meaning for the economy as a whole and, and nowadays even for the planet because everything is connected so what if all those i don't know the amount but it's probably billions and trillions of dollars that are being invested in people so that they can go get an education what if we invested that in, in health or what if we invested that in something else what would that mean for the economy so i think that that should be the question that we should be asking ourselves What's the better way to use those resources as a as a planet instead of instead of just thinking about should I go get a degree or not? Well, man, I I think that's a really good perspective to have, and it's brilliant to actually have someone who's experienced two different education systems to um, bring an approach on that one. Moving on, then it'll be our last question. Uh, we've heard a lot from you in this episode, and we wanted to try and find a way to maybe 
sum it all up. So, if you could have a message on a billboard of every city with a short message to the world, what would that message be? That's a, that's a tough question. I've been I've been thinking what would be my answer to that, and I've been thinking hard. And what I came up with is identify the extremes to be mindful about where you stand. And I think we can connect this with everything that we've been talking about, right? Because sometimes we suffer. Let's say I know your audience is is type A overachievers. They want to tackle the biggest challenges. They want to be the best. They want to continue learning. Sometimes we think that we're not good enough, right? But if we really identify the extremes, we can be mindful about where we really stand, right? Like, am I an expert or not? Okay, like, let me really understand what are the extremes within this topic. There are maybe PhDs. Okay, how far are they where I'm from? And maybe there's somebody who doesn't know anything about it. How far are they from? So let's say the PhD and the expert, the, the most renowned expert in the world is the 10 and then the person who doesn't know anything, doesn't even know the topic exists, it's a zero. Understanding where you are is gonna give you a better and more balanced perspective about how to feel about that and how to keep going, right? Like, And it's the same in, in every area. Sometimes we feel bad because, I don't know, I'm not eating enough, and especially nowadays with social media and the bombardment of uh, Everybody's sharing their highlight reel on social media. So you might feel bad because, okay, I'm not healthy enough. I, I don't have a six pack or I'm not lifting 300 pounds. And again, if you identify the extremes, like, okay, what's the, the person that has lifted the most, the most um, fit person in the world? Okay, that's the 10. A zero is, I don't know, somebody who is about to die because they're super sick. So, so where am I in that? continuum and what is the step I need to take to keep growing so and in the end that's the question that I think most people have been trying to solve is trying to find that balance I don't know if it's Socrates or Aristotle that talk about the golden medium and um, and it's what we want as humans right because we don't do well with uncertainty we don't like it, things that change. Nobody likes changing as an adult. It's a painful experience. We want to know what's coming. We want to be prepared. And, and fear of the unknown is one of the things that leads to most suffering and anxiety in the world. So by identifying the extremes and understanding when you're, where you stand, I think that could help people connecting it back to mindfulness and the suffering to really understand what it is they need to do to find meaning in their life where can our listeners find you i'm usually on instagram uh on the account that we connected through mindful business i would say that's a great way to to connect with me as you have you seen i'm always there posting about my books what i'm doing trying to keep people accountable and and keep each other accountable because that's one of the biggest things that i think helps people keep moving forward have people that support them and are experiencing the same challenges. So I'm, people can find me there if it's something. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, Alejandro Sanoja. If anybody wants to have a conversation there, I'm happy to do it. And um, that, that would say that's, that's it. Do you have any last messages that you'd like to share with our audience? Absolutely. What I would say is keep reading, keep listening to the Freedom Pack podcast, but most importantly, as you always mention it, just take action, right? Um, try to maximize, at some point, all the listening in the world and all the information and all the reading is not gonna help you change. You gotta go through the motions, you gotta take action. So I'll say to people, join the conversation and especially conversations like this because I feel that there's a lot of great podcasts out there in a lot of great books and information, but it's usually thinking back to that continuum of identifying the extremes. Usually people share when they're at 10, right? Like you see the expert after they're super, super successful sharing the experience. So they share you their life and their steps from step maybe eight, nine and 10. And they reference back to when they were a zero. So you hear something like, and I was broke, I had $7 in my bank account, and then I started to take action, and now I'm a millionaire. 
and you're thinking, okay, but what about step two, three, four, and everything in the middle? Where and that's where I am, and I'm struggling with that. So, I think yes, it's really valuable to hear from the top experts in the world. But I think for anybody who's out there taking action, who's in step one, two, or three, being part of the Freedom Pack community, listening to the Freedom Pack podcast is probably going to be more valuable to them because you guys are in that step in those steps right like you're taking step two three four you know what it is you just had that experience and you can share it with people so that they can get to where you are so um i love these type of conversations i love documenting the journey and i look forward to hopefully soon having another conversation and keep interacting with your audience alejandro this has been an absolute pleasure We'd like to say to our audience that we think that you were a prime example of what being a lifelong learner, what definitely what the power of reading can have over someone. Do you have any last messages, Lewis? Oh, I just I just wanted to extend um, a thank you for taking the time to do this and uh, out your schedule. It's probably been my favorite episode to date in terms of value. I thought you've brought a lot of value to this and a lot of practicality. And um, yeah, just a massive thank you. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Joe, for the opportunity. I look forward to hearing the feedback from your audience about how we can make it better the next time. Alejandro, it's been an absolute pleasure.